When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hey, welcome to Insights, folks. Today, Amy Wright chats with members of internationally acclaimed American Roots music group, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, including founding member Jeff Hanna. The primary focus for today's talk is the group's newest studio album, Dirt Does Dylan, in which they cover an outstanding collection of Bob Dylan tunes. There's been perhaps no one more influential for Jeff Hanna than Bob Dylan, so the creation of this album is very fitting. They also talk about the band's history and what has inspired them along the way. So let's get into it and hopefully you'll learn a thing or two like we did. Here's Amy Wright with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on Insights. So where are you guys right now? Are you uh, are you at home and are you traveling? What, where are you? A bunker in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. So uh, where were you when you founded Nitty Gritty Dirt Band? Um, Long Beach, California, in 1966. What was the scene like then? Uh, you know, because you guys kind of started in the folk rock country. It was kind of you. You really kind of threw it out there. So what was the scene like that? that you formed like that and that, that sort of genre, that sort of blended genre? Yeah, our band started, you know, we came out of the folk music scene in Southern California. So we were a jug band, which is sort of a, you know, an interesting amalgam of old timey music, blues, string band music, uh, ragtime, all those things kind of put, put together, a little bluegrass in there as well. And, uh, we're just a bunch of kids, a bunch of teenagers hanging out at the same guitar guitar stores and and little coffee houses. And, was there a particular guitar store that you hung out in at the time? There was. It was a place called McCabe's Guitar Shop in Long Beach. There were three of them back then. Uh, there's one famous one that's still open up in Santa Monica, out in LA. So, uh, yeah. So we hung out there and just sort of to avoid doing anything constructive we just sat around <laughs> swapped songs and traded guitar licks and started talking about having a band but we wanted being folkies who wanted it to be an acoustic band so the jug band thing came up as an idea i'd had a jug band in high school and it was really fun so we dove into the uh we were one i think we, were, we might have been the only jug band in our neighborhood that's for sure but uh people really took to it they liked it a lot we got, you know, won a talent contest at this little club called the Paradox, and from there we, uh, you know, we had this guy named Jackson Brown in our band for a little while. Uh, I don't yeah, know just just happened. a just a small guy. He's not a songwriter at all, is he? No. I don't know what happened to him? <laughs> yeah, Jackson. Yeah, whatever happened to Jackson Brown? Exactly. Right? He well, should have. Yeah, well, you you guys have had a lot of great talent over the years in the band, and and actually, we'll get to the new album, of course, but um, a lot of collaborators too, which I think is a testament to your music and writing and 
and all that you guys have done. Um, but I was sort of thinking about the guitar shop and I was thinking if you're a young band hanging out in a guitar shop, did they let, let you use the really nice guitars that were on the wall? They did. You know, we could go <laughs> reach up on the wall and pull some something really groovy off the wall and play it. And also remember that the whole vintage guitar thing wasn't a thing back then. It was either new guitars or used guitars. So they weren't quite as precious, which was really, really cool and gracious of them. But we got signed to a record deal and then the jug, made some jug band music for a few years and then switched to the sort of California, California country rock scene. Which is sort of the basis of what we've been doing ever since. With so you were, you were, yeah, you were signed to Liberty Records in yeah. 1967, and was that still the Jug Band, or was that the New Sound? When when did the New Sound kind of? We got signed as the Jug Band, and and, and on our recordings we were kind of like two bands because our record company wanted us to play some of that brand new folk rock, like the Birds and the Turtles and the Association, some bands from that era, um, Mamas and Papas. So we, you know, we recorded some tunes that weren't really, that wasn't really jug band music. And we go out and play our jug band sets and then we play the commercial radio things. And it, but our fans dug it, they were cool with it. But at the end of 68, um, we just had kind of had enough of each other. We were burnt out, we'd been touring real heavily. And when we got back together a few months later, we were a country rock band, which was really, that was fun. It was a nice move for us, I think. In 1970, you released the album Uncle Charlie and His Dog Teddy. And, and it had the uh, cover of Mr. Bojangles, which I think was a big, big hit for you guys, of course. Uh, I guess written by Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, but that album, talk about that album, because you had a little more creative freedom, right, with that album? Yeah, that was a big difference. When when we got when the band reformed uh, in the summer of '69, our manager uh, Bill McEwen, who was who had not been producing our records, stepped in. And when we made our when we re-signed with Liberty Records, uh, part of the deal for us was we'd have creative control, which we did and have ever since. But Bill did a great job producing that record, and it was a. I, it's really, to me, the first real Dirt Band album because we had our hands on it all the way through. So how did life change after that? You have a hit and now you're out touring. Was it all good? It was mostly good. I mean, you know, we were, we were starting family, so, you know, we were gone a lot, which was a drag. Um, but as far as the touring stuff went, it was terrific. You know, we are playing a lot of college shows and a lot of... Uh, all over the map. I mean, our band is always, it never made sense as far as like, well, wait, they're a jug band, so they're going to go on the road with the doors, right? Which we did. And when we were a country rock band, we were playing with folks like Aerosmith and ZZ Top, uh, Johnny Winter, that sort of thing, So, which was great because the categorization was not, it was, it was pretty broad. So touring was fun, you know, but it was hard. I mean, we were out there 300 days a year in the early part of that. So we lived down a bus. So let's talk about Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Because that was a that ended up being three albums over time. And we'll kind of get to that. But you put the first of them out in the early 70s. Wh whose idea was that? And um, what was kind of the goal of the album? That album uh, really started at, uh, from meeting Earl Scruggs. 
we were playing that college tour that I mentioned earlier. It was our first real tour of the South, actually. And uh, Earl Scruggs and his family came to our show at Vanderbilt University. And we hung out with them after the show for a couple hours, did a lot of talking and laughing and some playing as well. And, and on his way out the door, Earl said that he would love to record with us sometime. So with that idea in hand, um, our, our producer, Bill McEwen, again, a couple months later, called us up and said, hey, what would you guys think about expanding the idea? Multiple artists, all folks that have had a huge influence on all, and who had on all of us, that folks like Doc Watson and Merle Travis and Maybell Carter. And we, we were all in. We thought it was a great idea. So uh, we went, me and John McEwen, Bill's brother, who was a banjo player, uh, we went to see the Earl Scruggs Review in uh, early in the early spring, I believe it was in '71. And Johnny asked uh, Earl if he, you know, how if he would record with us on this record. And Earl said, "I'd be proud to." And we were off and running. We had Earl Scruggs in tow, so getting the other folks on the record was was a lot easier. <laughs> I bet you was a bunch of hip, a bunch of hippies from California. There was a lot. There was a little bit of like, did they really mean it? Are they really into this music? So that was pretty cool. Earl was a really open-minded cat. Really, really great, great guy. Who were some of the other folks on the album? Well, the great Doc Watson, of course. Uh, the great fiddler Vassar Clements, uh, Jimmy Martin, Mother Maybell Carter. Um, See, somebody asked, did I say Merle Travis? I think I did. Um, Roy, Roy, and of course, Roy Acuff. Thank you. And that record, man, it was so much fun. And the impact really culturally, uh, I think, didn't really hit us till after it was after the fact. We recorded it really quickly right here in Nashville, Tennessee, in Woodland Sound Studios across the river. Um, and uh, Took us six days to cut the record. And Bill McEwen then took the tapes to Los Angeles and dove in, listening to all the tape. It was all recorded live on my dad. But there was also all these conversations that were really, really amazing. And Bill, it was a really a genius thing on his part, had a separate tape recorder running that picked the whole thing up. So he edited all this stuff into the into the music in between songs and created this uh, it's kind of a happening, you know. Uh, and it was a beautiful thing. And after the fact, you know, we inspired people like this guy over here, Ross Holmes, our fiddler, the baby of the band. Hey, Ross, I'm a fiddler too, but I'm uh, not worthy. I'm just saying. <laughs> You're pretty good over there. <laughs> this is my son Jamie over here. And Jamie, yes. Okay. I, I, I'm going to get to I'm going to get to you, Jamie, because I'm going to have to ask you. Of course, did your dad, you know, teach you a few things along the way? And we're going to get to that when we get to the album. <laughs> but uh, so you keep keep that in mind. Um, but uh, you know, the imagery of "Will the Circle Be Unbroken?" I thought was just beautiful because, in sort of my opinion, it 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 brought that whole, all these genres that you're talking about, you know, there's a real history there 
and the artists that came before you and the artists that come after you and to show that continuum and it is a bit of a circle and to have all these artists on the same album you know different ages different genres and and playing together i thought was just a really beautiful concept so well, thank um, you you know i uh we were along for the ride and really happy to be part of it so there was a little bit of Forrest Gump going on here when I was looking at everything that you've done as a band over 50 years. And I just had to highlight a few things, you know, kind of along the way, just because I wanted to get your take on them. Because I was like, really? They were there and they were doing this? This is just really amazing. Um, in the uh, mid-70s, you were among the headliners at the Ozark Music Festival, which attracted about 350,000 people. So what was that experience like? I mean, that's almost another Woodstock that people haven't heard of. So what was that, uh, what was that like? Well, like, like Woodstock, it was chaos. You know? <laughs> um, I think that there were, there were fences and stuff to keep people, you know, here's your ticket, come on in. That kind of went beside the, you know, to the wayside really quickly. Uh, there, the facilities were funky and uh, there wasn't enough, food or water or, you know, porta, porta bodies, but, and it was really hot. <laughs> it was Sedalia, Missouri in the middle of the summer. That having been said, the music was really great. It was really fun to be part of that. Uh, Skinner was there and she, I think, you'd have to look at the, you're looking at the poster, do you have any, can you remember? Everyone you know, I'm going to have to look, I'm going to have to look back at the poster because um, I, it really intrigued me. I actually want to go down the rabbit hole and kind of know more about that because it was so huge as a regional uh, concert. I think they said it's the largest ever at this point. So that was, yeah. and it's also kind of centrally located. So I guess it was attracting people from all over, but uh, it just seemed like a really interesting um, spot to have a festival like that. Right in the middle of America, you know, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, we didn't, we weren't out in the crowd much. <laughs> we were on stage and they had a helicopter that was flying people from some Holiday Inn over to the, because we couldn't get there. The roads were all, you know, blocked off. Crazy, I bet, yeah. It was crazy, but it was fun to be part of, you know, uh, something that, at that moment in time. So you appeared on Saturday Night Live and you played with Steve Martin and then you toured with him. Tell me a little bit about that because that was right at the height of when he was doing all, you know, he was comedian. I mean, he was doing the Tut stuff on Saturday Night Live. And what was that like? It was great. Oh, Steve actually was our opening act for some years. Oh. Yeah, for a few years, I should say. Uh, and he decided he'd been opening for us and for Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles and some other folks. And he, he got really tired of people going, we want Linda. We want the Eagles. Go away. <laughs> you know, there's unknown comic out there in, in, in arenas. So, uh, and we had the same manager. Bill McEwen managed uh, Steve as well. So he decided to start playing the coffee house, cir house circuits and uh, got really popular. Created his own following, which was awesome. When, uh, as his, you know, star ascended, he was doing Saturday Night Live a lot. And uh, one of the years that he hosted, I believe it was the first, I think it was the opening of the season two, set 1978. And he uh, 
we got on the show as musical guests, which was awesome. And we did a couple songs with them. Later on, we recorded some of the guys in our band, me, myself, and uh, a guy named Richard Hathaway and Merle Bugani, who are rhythm section. The three of us recorded what was supposed to be a demo of that song, King Tut, that you talked about. So that's us on the record. Uh, the two Duncommons, we call ourselves. But we weren't on Saturday Night Live to King Tut with Steve. So you were just as you were just folks, as nitty gritty dirt band doing your own music and yeah 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 but when he performed it on SNL we couldn't be there because we were playing somewhere state fair somewhere <laughs> <You know>? so <laughs> we missed that one um, but yeah it was fun recording with him he's a great guy really really great guy we're uh, we're still in, in touch he's gone on to do so so much amazing stuff as an actor and a writer and I love his music his band is terrific. Uh, yeah, those, Steep Canyon those, Rangers. Those Steep are awesome. Rangers, fantastic. Love yeah, them. Yeah, the, love them. Speaking of Linda Ronstadt, which you just spoke about, you recorded a song, An American Dream, that went to kind of nine, 13 on the uh, pop charts. What was it like working with Linda, and how did you guys meet? She was in California, I guess, so it wasn't that odd, but... Yeah, well, you know, you're from California. Do you know <laughs> <laughs> how many million people? Uh, yeah. It, but it wasn't that odd because we all hung out and played at this club called the Troubadour in Los Angeles. Um, I did a little stint in, uh, I've known Linda, we've all known Linda since like 67, um, when she was in the Stone Ponies and the Dirt Band was, you know, making some noise in Southern California right about then. Uh, and in, at the end of 68, when the Jug Band shut down for a while, I played in Linda's band for about six months. So, you know, that, that friendship continued when I got back with the, with the guys in the band. We did American Dream. I was co-producing our records with a guy named Bob Edwards. And we cut this song. And uh, the original version that Rodney Crowell had recorded had Amy Lou Harris singing on it. And it sounded really great with a female voice. So um, somebody suggested, why don't you call Linda? I'm like, I can't call Linda. She's busy. Yeah, she was on, she was on the cover of Time magazine and stuff back then. And, you know, she was sure arguably the most popular female singer in America, if not you know one worldwide. So right, she picked up the phone when I called her, and we were in Los Angeles working on this record. And she said, "Hey, let's have dinner." And I said, "That'd be great, but could you come to the studio for a minute first? <laughs> and she graciously showed up and. Uh, sang that harmony, beautiful harmony in American Dream. Then we had dinner. It's great. Yeah, because you guys in '87, you put out a couple of country number ones: "Modern Day Romance" and "Fishing in the Dark," and uh, and those were country. It was kind of interesting to me that that you're having hits in completely different genres. I think that's incredible. Well, in 1980, when, when uh, American Dream was a hit, and then the follow-up, Make a Little Magic, with Nicolette Larson on our new vocals as well, um, we were at the sort of the tail end of our pop period for the band. The rock and roll and pop music sort of was fading as far as our uh, people just didn't care. <laughs> they had moved on from us. And yet, over in country music, the, the stuff that we'd been playing all these years really resonated with uh, country fans. So that was an easy transition for us. We were very lucky. I think doing well, the circle being broken kind of had opened those doors a crack for us. So it was 
a bit easier for us than some other acts I know to sort of go from rock to country. But we're grateful for it. We had a, a really good time over there at Country Radio for about a decade. Well, so in speaking of that, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? You put out a second Will the Circle Be Unbroken Volume 2 in 89. And you added some new folks like Johnny Cash and John Prine, Levon Helm, Emmy Lou Harris, John Denver, and Bruce Hornsby, who was obviously pro- young at the time, I guess. Um, so uh, what was the impetus for the second, the second Will the Circle Be Unbroken album? Well, uh, we were touring Europe with the Johnny Cash show, which also had the Carter sisters singing Johnny's wife, June Carter Cash, and her sisters, Helen and Anita. Uh, and June came in our dressing room one night and started talking about how much Mother Maybell loved our band, and it, which we appreciated a lot. She calls us then Dirty Boys. Maybell did. Um, and June said, well, you know, if you boys ever thought about doing another Circle record, John and I would love to take part in it. So she walks out the door and we're like, okay. 17 years have gone by, let's, let's try it again. But with Johnny Cash, who's gonna say no? So that was really fun, it was great. It was a different, you know, it was more sort of singer-songwriter oriented than the first album with, of course, with John Prine and Bruce Hornsby, um, Michael Martin Murphy, Emmy, yeah. And so, uh, Levon was so cool too. You know, these are all folks that we really admired and you know the, the the next generation of bluegrassers, Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and uh, Mark O'Connor, uh, Roy Husky Jr., whose dad Junior Husky had played bass on the original Circle record. So the circle continued. You know, that's what I love about this, and because we're going to get to number three. But um, so this particular album won a couple of Grammys. What what in particular did you think made this particular album special? Well, I think that. You know, we had taken it, 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 the music had evolved, and the, and the folks that I mentioned a minute ago, some of whom were already living in the bluegrass world, some of whom were fans of it, like Bruce Hornsby was a pop star right then. In fact, uh, we did a cover of his song, The Valley Road. When Bruce brought it up as a bluegrass tune, I was a little puzzled. I said, Bruce, it's still on the charts right now. your version and he said yeah but i always heard it as a bluegrass tune so and he was right became the first uh was the second bluegrass family right but it was also the first one with a lead piano with that bluegrass piano in it but it was a great it was a really great idea on his part it was fun cutting that track well there was a subsequent circle album in 2004 but will there be a fourth circle album it's hard to say, you know, I would never say no, but three was, a, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot in there. Plus, in uh, 2016, we did a, a DVD and a PBS special and a CD called Circle and Back that Jerry Douglas, who played on uh, Circle 2 and Circle 3, he said it's another Circle record, which I kind of agree. It was a live album that we recorded at the Ron Auditorium. So we kind of have four of those under our belts. Um, but there's always, you know, the, the landscape is always shifting and there's um, some amazing young acts out there playing this music and, and, and pushing boundaries and doing all the stuff that we admire. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be a cool idea at some point. 
So in uh, 2015, because we're about to start talking about the new album, but in 2015 you celebrated the 50th anniversary as a band with a concert at the Ryman. What was it like to look back at such an incredible catalog of music and all the experiences you have had, um, obviously, and you're moving into the future, and we're going to get to Dirt Does Dylan, but um, what was that experience like? It was great. I mean, you know, we... 2016 was the actual 50th anniversary. So in the fall of 2015, um, we, in the summer, I should say, we started calling our friends and seeing if they'd like to help us celebrate this milestone. And they all said yes, which was really humbling and made us all feel great. Jackson Brown said he'd come back and sing a couple tunes with us. Uh, our buddy Vince Gill, Allison Krauss, Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush again, and, and uh, Byron House on, on upright and electric bass. Great, great musicians, amazing, world-class musicians. Um, Rodney Crowell, who had writ written American Dream and also a song called Long Hard Road. That was our the Dirt Band's first number one record, first country hit we ever had, first number one, I should say. Um, so it was a beautiful night. It was it was really great. You had Johnny Prime, was, was so cool. Um, it was, uh, exhausting <laughs> because we rehearsed, you know, uh, 12, 14 hour days going in and then had a four hour sound check and then kind of grabbed a sandwich and changed our clothes and went out and did a three hour show. But the crowd was so phenomenal that the minute we hit that stage, nobody was tired anymore. <laughs> it was like, this is, a we were levitating. And we just sort of rode that wave. It was a really, really great night. When everyone talks about the Ryman, it's like going to church. You know, it's really a special place to, to be able to play there. And I think everyone who goes to a show there knows it's a special place. So it had to be a great night. It was a great night. And, and I, I think all of us would agree it's certainly among our favorite venues to hear music in. That's, For sure. And being on the stage is something else as well. So now we're going to talk about Dirt Does Dylan, but I have to say that when I was looking at this earlier, I said, Diddy is talking to Dirt about Dirt Does Dylan. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. Where did the whole idea for the concept album come from? Well, when Jamie uh, and Ross started playing with us in 2018, and we were able to squeeze in a solid two years on the road, at the end of 2019, we started talking about making a record. And somebody suggested, if you guys ever considered doing like a single source, as far as the material goes, album, you know, some folks would call it a tribute album uh, or whatever, you know. Uh, and Dylan's name came up immediately because his music not only resonated with all of us, I mean, we're talking about a couple of generations here and we all have our favorite Dylan music that's moved us over the years. Mine goes back to when I was a teenager. So we, we dove deep into the catalog and uh, ended up with a bunch of tunes. Uh, I think we, we started with about 80 and whittled it down to about 30 by the time we got in the studio. And Ross and Jamie and I and Bob Carpenter and Jimmy Fadden and Jim Fotoglo, uh sat around the studio with acoustic guitars and started running these tunes seeing what how we felt if they, you know, where the pocket and the groove was for our band. And we 
We recorded for four days, I think. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And, and uh, we cut, I think, 10 tracks. And then the curtain came down on the world, <laughs> March 13th. We, we literally got on the bus to, and went out and played our first and last shows of 2020. Came home and, you know, on, on March 13th and had no idea if we'd ever get back in the studio and even finish the record or if we'd go on the road. You know, there was so much sure. indecision <laughs> and so well, chaos and just, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we were all just wondering what's up for a very long time. And uh, we got back in slowly but surely starting in the fall of 2020 and, uh, into the beginning of 21. And, and to finish these tracks up and cut a, cut a couple more in the summer of 21, right before we went back, started touring again in August of last year. So there you go. So it what were you looking at? I mean, when you look, look at wheedling down 80 songs, well, actually start with the, his whole catalog of music and then you pick 80. Of, yeah. yeah. And then you go from 80 to 40 and 40 to 10. What was the criteria that you were looking for to down select to that small group of songs? Because they're beautiful, by the way. Thank you very much. Well, the criteria, I think, is like I said, did it fit the band? Could we sort of own those tunes for that three minutes or that five minutes? Um, and, you know, and, and, and do something with it. Because, you know, I mean, Dylan's been covered a lot. So it, it was like, let's, if we can slap some dirt band on there and have folks enjoying the fact that we're playing this music and, and you know, they're all great. Again, it's Bob Dylan. So the songs that I think is a band that were most compelling for us are the 10 that are on there. I mean, we could jump right in and do another 10 or another 20 or another 30, you know, I mean, he's crazy good. <laughs> uh, but I think part of it is stylistically uh, Dylan's uh, his take on country or country rock uh, really suits what we do with Ross's fiddle and mandolin playing it, Jamie's electric playing in particular because he we're we're all we all come from uh, as far as our musical roots. We've lived in this world for a long time. You know, Ross came up as a bluegrass picker and originally right yeah pretty much well so can we talk let, about this guy can we talk yeah about this that's what we're going to talk about here so Thank let's you. yeah let's, mean, but yeah no 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 absolutely that's what that i was gonna uh, sort of bring in so let's let's talk to you ross first uh how did you, did you start playing in classical were you always playing um bluegrass or another style of fiddle I, so I, I started out playing Texas contest style fiddling, which if you're from Texas, that's the option that you have, Texas contest style fiddling, which also includes the um, the Western swing, the Bob Wills, the Johnny Gimbals, you know, that, that sort of world of, of music. Um, but I was fortunate uh, enough to, to grow up in a neighborhood with a very famous violinist and conductor, Kurt Springer, who sort of, after three or four years of playing fiddle, I started when I was nine. Um, he sort of took me under his wing to not train me to become a classical violinist, but to show me technique and provide me a better understanding of music so that it would unlock things within fiddling that I wouldn't 
get otherwise by just hanging around the the, the folk music, the, the rote learning scene. Um, and so it, it it opened up the instrument to me to to really kind of study other styles of of music. And bluegrass was certainly right on the edge of that Western swing, that Texas Texas contest style music. And um, when I was 18, founded a, a bluegrass band that was pretty successful for a long time and have dabbled in and out of different genres with different projects over the years. And this whole opportunity came about because I moved in two doors down from Jamie in 2015. So, you know, we were very, very quickly, we were uh, front lawn beer drinking buddies with our kids <laughs> all the same age and commiserating about the world in Nashville. And uh, then started hanging out and Jeff come over and we pick tunes and have parties and, the the 50th anniversary year in 2016 they um were incredibly gracious to invite both of us out to sit in at the skirmerhorn symphony hall here in nashville for um for a special evening of music and then everything just kind of came about when the scene and the dirt band changed and jamie and i both had some some time to come join on the road and and here we are a dylan album in and a pandemic later <laughs> so uh and, and Ross had been playing with Bruce Arnsby, by the way, which is talking oh. about full, cir full circle again. You know, our old buddy Bruce, and he he was in Noisemakers for four years. Yeah, yeah. So it all worked out. And you, Jamie, are also the next part of the circle. And you grew up with Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and your dad. And what was it like growing up with um, all that music in the house? There was there were there was a great record collection. I bet. Because my dad wasn't really, he was gone on the road most of the time. But there was always good music around for my brother and I to listen to. Um, and I didn't really start playing music until I was in, you know, I did get a guitar from my dad on my eighth, I believe my eighth birthday. And I didn't really take to it. I, I'm a lefty and I learned how to play right handed and that hurt. No, painful and <laughs> it's kind of like he he wanted that and I thought he thought that'd be cool you know <laughs> but I had that guitar I had that guitar and then years later I saw a Crossroads movie with uh Steve Vai and the music was with Ry Cooter and uh and Arlen Roth and um that that movie inspired me to play guitar um and then I was like hey dad <laughs> I'm into playing guitar now, and uh, it was great. That kind of was a, a big, a big deal for for us because, yeah. you know, until then I, I didn't really take to it. And, and music was always there. Music was always in the house. My mom always had good music playing, and thankfully, my parents had great taste. Still have great taste in music because that's I've seen what happens to other kids. Whose <laughs> 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 <His> parents did. <laughs> uh, but, we can uh, all agree on that right here. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, going to your band shows for ever mm. since I was a kid, it was always a special thing. You know, I always got to see my dad and, and, you know, my, like all of my other father figure type people, like I've known my whole life, you know, my godfather, Jimmy. Who's our drummer? The drummer. <laughs> yeah. The drummer. My god, my godfather. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, as far as the Dirt Band goes, I mean, it's always been part of my fabric in my life. As, you know, it, it's, as far as music is concerned, I, I know it just as well as anything. Um, so 
obviously this is special for me. It's kind of like uh, like an old cozy blanket that I get to play it with my dad and Bob and Jimmy and Ross, my neighbor. And uh, that's, it's been fun. The album is just, it's a great album. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I, I wanted to know how you chose the other collaborators because I thought that kind of brought in the whole circle too. You, you had Larkin Poe and you had Jason Isbell and other folks. How did you kind of choose who you were gonna work with on this album? Well, these, these were people as, as the way it's gone with almost every collaboration we've ever done on a record is we knew these folks and we admired their music, but they were friends of ours as well. With the exception of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, where we admired them as musicians, but didn't really, we became friends after the fact. Sure. Um, but on the subsequent records, volume two and three, it was like, hey, you want to come pick with us? You know, <laughs> we could have dinner or we could play. Um, when we uh, when we got back into the studio after uh, you know when when the doors and windows started opening a little bit back up in the middle of 2020, we talked about putting uh, the times that are changing out because we had all this music and we we're like, oh, it's just sitting there. Can we do something with this? You know, because had a lot of time on our hands. Music business shut. You know, first to close and last to open. Um, so uh, from the jump, we'd always talked about times are changing, being a collaborative tune. And I just started calling folks. Jason Isbell was my first call, uh, but we've known each other for about 10 years now, I think. And we talked about maybe doing something at some point. I laid it out for him, sent him the track. And he said, man, I'd love to do this. It'd be great. And, uh, he said, what verse do you want me to sing? I said, the second verse, is that okay? And he said, yeah, they're Dil it's Dylan, they're all great. <laughs> Every <laughs> verse is great. So he, he came in uh, and played some really tasty slide guitar on that track as well. Um, our friends, the Warren Treaty, uh, whom we had met when we played the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in 2018. Oh, they're, they're great, yeah. Oh, they're so great. Nemi Lou was... Uh, introduced us to them and we spent a couple hours just hanging out and chilling and they were just uh, they're incredibly great people and it, off the charts you know talent the talent is something else uh, profound so they came in and sang uh later the same day as, as uh jason did so we had i was singing the first verse we had jason on the second third verse was open at this point Fourth verse was uh, we're in treaty. Um, we got a hold of Roseanne Cash, who was it up in she lives in New York with her husband, the uber talented producer guitarist John Leventhal, and she was all about it. We sent her the track and she loved it. She said she'd be honored to be on. So she sang. Uh, oops, sorry, not to say. Uh, she sang the third verse uh, up recorded it up in New York. We got back to Nashville and my wife, Matresa Bird, came in and sang, who's a very talented singer songwriter in her own right, um, sang harmony with Rose on that on that uh, third verse and played some Dylan style harmonica on the record as well, which just full disclaimer, Jimmy Fadden, who's our drummer and like this legendary harp player was in Florida, locked down, he wasn't going anywhere. So we had to call him and kind of 
hey, Jimmy, is it okay if Tracy comes in and plays harp? It's like, yeah, because he showed her how to play, basically. So that was fun. The last verse was Steve Earle and uh, Ray Kennedy, who did most of the heavy lifting on the production side of this. Um, great, brilliant, legendary engineer, I might add, and he's produced Steve and Lucinda Williams for many, many years. Uh, he was up in New York doing a record with Steve and played Steve the, the track and asked him if he'd like to be on it. And Steve was like, yep, that would be great. So finished it up and we put it out as a single at the beginning of 2021. So that was just a little taste of the record out there in the universe. In April of 21, uh, we called Larkin Poe up. And, uh, we had this tune, you know, I Shall Be Released that Bob Carpenter was singing. And Ray and I started talking about that and you know, how cool that would be for them. Uh, Ray wasn't really familiar with their music at that point. We had, they had been our opening act. They, they, were, they were a support act back in 2010 when they first became a duo. And they, they evolved. They started in the bluegrass world. And they're now like a badass, badass, hard rocking blues duo. I mean, they got a great band, I might add. But they are like seriously deep in it, rocking. Hard rock. Oh, I'm a so, huge fan of Lark and Poe. So I love oh they're yeah. so cool. We just we just love them. And they again we had we'd stayed in touch over the years and I sent Rebecca the track that we got the basic with Bob's vocal on it of I shall be released. And I said we'd love to have you guys come in and sing on it. And I'd love to have Megan play some lap steel and she's incredible, you know. Uh just burns that thing up. One of one of the great slide guitar players, in my opinion. So they came in at one afternoon in uh, beginning of April and put those great harmonies on there and, and the additional the addition of the lab steel as well. So uh, yeah, I'm we're really happy that they're on this record. And so just uh, where where did you record it and who produced it? Ray, I, I co-produced it with Ray Kennedy, but as okay. I said earlier, he's this guy just does it all. He's a mad scientist. We say with, with deep respect, he has tons of vintage gear, and lots of great instruments. I mean, Jamie and I played played his guitars for a great portion. A lot of times people, you walk into studios like a museum or a guitar shop, I, I, I don't know which, but the whole, all the walls are lined with all these amazing instruments. He has a great drum kit. Jimmy Fadden played his drums. Our, our bass player, Jim, played Ray's, you know, vintage Fender bass. It was really cool. But he's really, his soundscapes are really, really great. He makes it, we love hearing what we're hearing through the speakers after he's recorded it. So he's really great. And he's a great cheerleader, really upbeat, just a cool, cool cat. Will you be touring soon for this album? We are touring. Uh, you are actually. touring, okay. We are touring. We, you know, we've got our toe in the water. It's this time of year. It's kind of a uh, a slow build. By the time we hit the middle of the summer, we're out, we'll be out till the end of November. So, yeah. Are you coming to Memphis? Gosh, we just played in Memphis, didn't we? We did yeah, last we, year. It's Graceland Live. Um, oh, Graceland. Okay. Yeah, that was fun. Great venue. Love that. Yeah. Uh, next I time you're in Memphis, let us know because we'd we love to have you come do. down to the studio and do a couple of tunes and. We would really love that. We love Memphis. It's one of our favorite towns in the world. And 
Well, we love you guys, and this Dirt Does Dylan is just an incredible album. We wish you the best of luck on your tour and with the album. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, and uh, it was just a great conversation. Loved it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate thank it. All right, folks, we can't thank the members of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band enough for dropping by this hour to discuss their latest studio album, Dirt Does Dylan. Head over to their website to order your very own copy or a copy for a friend, and maybe even go the extra mile and share about it on social media to let your followers know about this excellent new release. And be sure to check these guys out live when they head to a town near you. No one does it quite like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.